Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. Yeah, so here we are. Uh, we are in uh, number three of our Advent series uh, called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, really just looking at, uh, you know, some of these amazing hymns that we've looked at uh, and, and heard in the malls for years and years and years while well, this one was written in the 1700s. Um, but to just look at them and, and look a little bit deeper, uh, we can be uh, in a place where uh, this, this music, uh, these songs, uh, this uh, stuff that we experience at Christmas just becomes so familiar and uh, just becomes something that feels comforting and joyful and, and wonderful, which is really good. But uh, when these songs were written, some of them were written with a, with a significant agenda, with a significant message, uh, with the idea that they were really presenting something that uh, the writers of the th songs thought were going to be uh, transformative and going to make a difference. And so we wanted to sort of uh, step back and, and look at this really familiar song that we've sung, you know, a thousand times and just really begin to... Uh, uh, pull on it and, and pull some of the depth out of it. This one was written by Charles Wesley, uh, who was born in the 1700s and lived and ministered then. We looked at his history a little bit uh, last, uh, a couple of weeks ago. He wrote over 8,000, almost 9,000 hymns. So talk about that in terms of a writer who is, you know, got some time on his hands or something. Like, can you imagine, like, writing 9,000 poems over the course of your life and then having them set to music for years? So, so this is just sort of a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, one. It was written in 1739. Uh, we have copies, of course, of original hymnals and, and all of that. It's, uh, it's beautiful. It wasn't until the 1840s that it was actually set to music by somebody else. Um, I mean, actually, it would have been done with music uh, in, the, in the original time. It would have been sung, but they would be singing it based on basically an old English folk tune uh, they would say, hey, let's sing, hark the herald angels sing, turn to your hymnals here, and this week, let's sing it in the tune of blah, 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 which would be just some English folk song, and they would just sing it with that pattern that everybody was familiar with. And so this week, we're on to this third verse, um, and we're going to just sort of dig into it. Uh, the main idea in it, though, is this is where he's introducing, like, theologically, the idea of new birth. Uh, a new beginning, a new life coming to us, and why we need that new life. And so we're just going to look at the, the hymn. Uh, we're going to sing it together now. We'll sing it at the end. But let's just, uh, why don't we stand for a second? That gives you guys a little chance to stretch your legs. And we'll uh, then engage with the meaning in just a moment. And I'm going to start this in a key that doesn't kill me when we reach the end. Um, so, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Now He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Awesome. Give yourselves a big hand. You may be seated. That's great. 
You guys, you guys have amazing, beautiful singing voices. You're fantastic. Uh, he did great. Uh, so what we want to really do is sort of pull out of this one. We want to just sort of focus on uh, these three lines highlighted in blue in the middle here. Uh, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second verse. We're going to look at those two lines uh, that are a little further ahead. Hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings uh, at the end. But I want to just uh, focus on these ones that are centered around the question of soteriology or the question around salvation and how it works for us. And, and what I really want to do is just sort of bring uh, us to a question about the idea of second birth. We're going to look at uh, John, we're going to look at Ephesians on that subject. Uh, but just to ask this question for starters is why do humans need a second birth? Like what was wrong with the first one? Right? <laughs> why do humans need to be reborn? Like what is, the, what is the big deal here? What was so bad about the first one? What is it that I need to be saved from and to appreciate the beauty of this incredible uh, new life that God's given us? Right? We have to uh, kind of engage with uh, the understanding that we must be dead, <laughs> which is just a really super exciting Christmas topic for a sermon. Uh, but it's something that we have to gauge with, and it's something that churches just uh, own, don't often tackle. But uh, good news is good news because of the bad news. And it's just a piece of what we have to wrestle with. I, I think uh, as a pastor, if I was going to get to be the cool pastor, we would just skip all the sin bits and just talk about the good news bits. And that would be great. But the reality is, is that there's uh, something significant for us to grapple with in terms of, uh, in terms of all of that. Um, I like being a good news person. How many of you just like being like, how many of you like giving the good news and not giving the bad news, right? We love giving the good news, not giving the bad news. And we like these really positive encounters that we have with people. One of the things that we often uh, say is that we want to be people who are just bringing joy and bringing life like wherever we are. So when I go into Walmart, how many of you just love lining up at Walmart? How many of you, just to ask a big question, how many of you love the new self-checkout deal at Walmart? I, I, I don't. I don't. I, I like to connect with the people. I like to be there and stand in line a little bit and be tempted by buying lint chocolates and, uh, and, and gum and all those other things in the impulse control aisle and, uh, and connecting with the person. And, and I feel like as Christians, you know, one of the things that we could really do is uh, when we're meeting with the cashier, when we're connecting with them, when they're trying to get us to sign on for the MasterCard again and again and again and again and again and again every time we're in there, that there's an opportunity to shine uh, the light, like Brent and Krista were talking about earlier in the Advent thing, right? There's an opportunity to be uh, bright and light and joyful and get to know uh, people's names and to uh, connect with them. And so now I know the names of some of the cashiers uh, in the Walmart and uh, they change over a lot, but there's, uh, there's, there are people there that you slowly, slowly begin to build rapport with and, and get to know. But the reality is, is that that uh, good news face shining, smiling thing, I'm pretty sure none of those people in Walmart are going to just immediately fall on their knees and confess their need of Jesus in the checkout line, right? <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. Like that's not a full approach to evangelism and all it is, is just hanging out in the Walmart checkout line. Uh, the reality is, is that a lot of these people that we, we see, we meet in Walmart, we meet in our daily lives, we meet wherever we're going, uh, have uh, significant things going on in their lives, right? 
have significant things going on in their lives. And if you uh, get to the heart of uh, someone that you're caring for, that you're getting to know, that you're uh, doing business with, that is a student in the school, uh, whatever it is, um, that person is going to have moments like what you see on your screen. Just like you have moments like what you're seeing on the screen. Uh, moments of wrestling with sin, moments of wrestling uh, with darkness, moments of wrestling with pain. And in some cases, uh, for a person, that can be an oppression that's over them. Like it can be uh, a pain that they're carrying because of something that's been done to them or a sin that's been done to them or a wound that's happened or abuse that they've experienced. Or sometimes it can be the pain of sin that they've uh, done, right? Or the, like sin that we've done, right? We, we hurt people, we wound people all of the time. Um, and so uh, it's, uh, it, it's the challenge. And, and very often the reality is, is that even below some of that is stuff that we've done to hurt God's heart that has actually been hurting us, like our addictions and all of that, right? So there's a, there's a real wrestling with sin that's evident. Uh, Ernest Becker uh, says this. He says, the plight of the modern therapeutic individual is that he or she is dead in sin and has no language for it. The average person on the therapist's couch or the average person who's going to a counselor has no language for it. All of the analysis in the world doesn't allow the person to find out who they really are. When psychology tries to answer this question without theology, it becomes a fraud. At the heart of a lot of the therapeutic models, uh, this guy wrote in, uh, in 1974. Um, so this was, you know, sort of early days, you know, post the 60s, uh, really developing uh, what it meant to uh, almost building an industry of care, an industry of self-help that's grown from that period. As he was looking back in that time and that space and saying, hey, uh, we are denying that death is somehow at work in us. We're denying that sin is at work in humanity. Sin is at work in America. And, and this is a person who is, has a Jewish background, not a Christian, uh, but who is just sort of looking at this stream of thinking as psychology and, and saying, hey, there is something missing from this. That's not to say that there's not tremendous value in going to see a therapist or a caregiver when we're wrestling with various issues. We want to really make sure uh, we validate that. But, but what we really want to see people doing is, is getting care from somebody who has that theological piece as well and who can walk you through uh, the, the God challenge. Uh, this sort of sterile kind of uh, clinical uh, look at care that is, uh, is evident sometimes in culture is um, missing something. It's missing something that's really important. It's missing something that's, uh, that, that is actually that transformative piece that's going to uh, really anchor somebody, that's really going to bring uh, deep uh, healing to them. Uh, the reality is, is that the heart of a lot of the pain and the struggle and the stuff that we wrestle with is this issue of sin. Right, uh, John Wesley, since we were talking about the Wesleys, he um, maybe is more bold than most of our preachers are these days, but he puts a really fine point on it. He's talking about his own journey here, talking about the people that he's caring to in the 1700s in England. He says, so desperately wicked and so deceitful is the heart of man. What danger, say they, can a woman be who is so harmless and so virtuous? What fear is there for so honest a man, one of so strict morality, that he should miss 
heaven, especially if over and above all things, they constantly attend on church and sacrament. Like, like what could be the problem with somebody who seems so virtuous and seems so kind and they go to church and they do the sacraments regularly? What could be the real problem in the life of this person? Uh, he says this, he says, one of these will ask with all assurance, what shall I not do as well as my neighbors? Yes, as well as your unholy neighbors, as well as your neighbors that die in their sins, for you will all drop into the pit together into the nethermost hell. You will all lie together in the lake of fire, in the lake of burning with brimstone. Thank you, John Wesley, <laughs> for that. Woo! Yeah, I feel great. <laughs> right? Like these old preachers, like, you know, they, they're not pulling any punches these old guys, right? He says this, he continues on, then at length you'll see, but God grant you may see it before. The necessity of holiness in order to glory and consequently of the new birth since none can be holy except he be born again. And Wesley presents the solution. There is a new birth uh, for us. There is a new life that is intended for us. That there is real consequence to sin. There is real consequence uh, to uh, what we are wrestling with. You know, one of the things that I encountered at time, again, we've been doing a lot of writing for Vineyard Canada and a lot of uh, speaking into a number of different issues uh, in, in the vineyard world. And one of the, the pieces of language that has, have, I've been hearing really frequently that I've really been wrestling with, uh, talking about, you know, sin in our lives or struggle or whatever is, you know, the, this language that we're, we're broken. You know, we're just broken people. And, and it's true, I, I like that language in the sense that uh, it's very soft language, isn't it? Like we are just broken people. We've been hurt. We've been wounded. And it's language that's inclusive. It's language that speaks to the reality that we all uh, have, um, have, have a struggle, that we all have wounds, that we all have uh, pain, right? It, it speaks to that reality. But it doesn't necessarily speak to uh, the real heart of it, right? When God, what do you think, what does God see when he sees that you're broken? And what does God see when he sees that uh, you've been abused or that you've abused somebody else? What do you think he sees when one of the humans that he's created uh, has been damaged and is walking with a limp and is walking uh, with pain? What is the response in the heart of God to that? One of his precious, beautiful, beautiful creatures. What is the response to the heart of God? It's wrath. It's wrath. God is not a computer. God is not um, got a checklist. God has not got a, an emotional distance from his creation and from the people that he loves. God does not have an emotional distance from you. When somebody hurts you and when you hurt yourself, uh, imagine what you feel about your child when they're hurt, when somebody hurts them. What do you feel as a parent when your child is bullied? What do you feel as a parent when somebody takes your child and pushes them uh, down a hill? What do you feel as a parent? Mm. 
there's a wrath there. And that is something that God feels for you when you are broken, when you are wounded, when you are damaged, when you are hurt by others. God, wrath is something that God feels against me when I hurt someone, when I damage his creatures, and when I wound them. So something needs to be done with that wrath. And of course, that's what Jesus came for, to bear that wrath, so that God would bear that wrath on himself and within himself so that we could be free, so that we could have new life. And we're going to look at that in Ephesians in just a second. But uh, there's, there's ways that we as Christians, and this is something that's an important message to be so, so important to be part of our, our message to our non-Christian friends, that there is something that we need to be saved from. But we as Christians, I think we need the gospel uh, preached to us again and again and again, Right? We need to get saved again and again and again. Uh, freedom Sessions is something that we're going to be uh, talking about maybe over the next few weeks. It's an experiment that we're going to try as a church um, uh, with, with just a small group of people who might want to be involved in a pilot where we start looking at discipleship at a little bit deeper level so that for us, salvation doesn't become, okay, I've put my hand up in a meeting. I'm showing up occasionally at a home church. Uh, I'm, I'm praying a little bit. I'm going to church. I, I've given my life to Jesus. But how do we work uh, the yeast of the gospel uh, and discipleship really deeply in us so that we begin to not just know about new life and be aware about new life and experience it on a surface level, but we begin to really actually go deep and allow God to speak into our family of origin issues and to speak into our addictions and to speak into those things that are our sin patterns that really drive us and begin to really find freedom in Christ. And we see this happening in some wonderful ways. There's uh, some Bible studies that are going, and there's uh, uh, young adults. You guys are doing a beautiful job of digging into each other's hearts. But it's just as a church, it's just something that we need to do uh, at a new level, like to really begin to engage and to really begin to learn how to walk free. Ephesians describes uh, the journey of a Christian like this, uh, from a place of being dead in sin to a place of, of finding new life. Uh, he, he, Paul describes it like this to the church in Ephesus. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires, our desires and thoughts. He's describing, I like how he's using the word used to, right? There's a demarcation point. There's a change that's happened in our lives. But there was a time when you, and maybe to some degree still, follow the ways of the world. Right? When it's not uh, the way of Jesus that you're following. When it's not uh, how Jesus wanted us to behave that you're following. When it's not uh, the laws of God that we're following. But we're following and we're looking to Google. And we're looking to uh, MD.com. And we're looking to all of these different things to say, hey, where am I going to find some truth? Where am I going to find something I can grapple onto uh, to follow, to lead my life? Whatever it is that you're looking to. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's CNBC. <laughs> you know, who knows what it is that you're following 
following, but, but there are ways in which we've followed the ways of the world, what Netflix teaches us, what Disney teaches us. Uh, there's, there's a change that has to happen in the way we're following. So we have followed the ways of the world, and we followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So Paul puts a really fine point on that, right? There's a way in which uh, before we gave our lives to Jesus, we weren't just following um, uh, you know, just even the ideas that we have in culture or society, we were actually following the enemy. We were following an enemy. We were following after him. We were paying attention to what he wanted in our lives and whether we could express it or not or we knew it or not. It says his spirit was, uh, is at work in those who are disobedient. So there's a way in which as we're disobedient to God, as we're not following him, as we're not uh, being people who are going in the way of Jesus... His spirit, the spirit of an enemy is at work in us. And so we just lived gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. And that's kind of what we're taught, right, in our culture. That, man, you should really find out what it is that you're all about. You should really find out what it is that you really like and who you really are and look inside yourself to just be who you ought to be. Whatever you really desire, you should find a way to walk that out. Well, I desire a lot of bacon. Does anybody else desire a lot of bacon? Right? How many of you desire cupcakes and cookies? I desire, my heart just, let me tell you, my heart desires cookies especially this time of year. My heart desires Nanaimo bars. Come on, Nanaimo bars. My heart did not desire that I get like an artificial sweetener and make my Nanaimo bars. (laughs) My heart desired that I get icing sugar and make my Nanaimo bars. But I can't follow the desires of my heart. And, and for most of us, it's not about Nanaimo bars. It's about a lot of other things that we want to chase after that are a lot worse than Nanaimo bars. I, I'm blessed with a very popular and, and well-accepted addiction. But some of us aren't blessed with such happy addictions. Right? There's struggles uh, that we need to wrestle with. Uh, our desires and thoughts, we see it in James, when we, by our own desires, are drawn away and enticed, right? Uh, sin is not something we can decouple ourselves from and say, hey, that's just something that I was made with, that's just something that's inside me, and I've just got to roll with it, right? Uh, we see those things as sin. And so uh, the response to this is what we talked about earlier. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Dang, sweet baby Jesus, why are we talking about wrath again? This doesn't seem Christmassy at all. This really sucks. <laughs> right? But this is what he was born to say. Remember what we sung? Born that man no more may die. We have to recognize that this uh, death is at work in ourselves. And so it says this the solution is presented. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. Because there's great love for us. Right? There's something new that's happening. There's life that he wants to pour out for us. There's an experience of rebirth and regeneration that we're meant 
to have. And this is uh, the story of John and Charles Wesley. Um, these were people, like we talked about last week, who had been ministers for uh, a long time. They'd been studying since they were children. They were ordained in the church. They were following him. They'd, they'd been to America uh, to do missions. Like they were living the perfect Christian life. And then after that, they experienced new birth by their own description of what new birth really was for them. That something happened in their hearts uh, beyond even being strangely warmed where they experienced an encounter uh, that absolutely transformed and changed them so that the struggle, uh, the wrestle, uh, the dealing with sin all of a sudden became something that was totally different because the spirit of Jesus began to live and dwell inside of them and began to move them and move in their lives in power. Something supernatural and dramatic happened when Jesus came into their lives that we can't make happen, that we can't decide will happen, that we can cry out for, but we need it to happen for the Holy Spirit to come, to come in power. And that's just, we just, in, in ministry, we just know so many stories about this. This is just a picture of random dorm room that I pulled off the web. But, but I remember the story of, uh, of one of the guys on my dorm floor um, just coming, uh, you know, he was like, he was, he was, he was actually, he was like the perfect Bible school student. Like he was this, he was that guy. Like he was this awesome guy. He, he was clear that he had a calling. It was clear that he was praying. It was clear that he had, uh, to, to all of us looking at him, that he had a life that was just absolutely stellar and absolutely reaching for the top in terms of becoming a kingdom person. And I remember him coming into my dorm room. My roommate was, was out and he came and he sat down in, in my roommate's chair and he said, you know what, I, I've, I've got to tell you something. And he began to pour out like tales of wickedness that you, you just absolutely wouldn't believe about a life that was absolutely uh, unknown to us, but dark and, and full of sin and full of conflict and full of pain and full of depravity. And he laid that out in, in, in the room with me. And, and we prayed a simple prayer. We said, Jesus, uh, will you just come and forgive? Jesus, you see all of this. Will you take it? Will you begin to transform uh, my friend's life? And we prayed, I don't know, we must have prayed for almost two hours, like just, and weeping and, and crying and repentance and prayer. And, and then a few years later, he described that as a pivot point for him. Like that was a moment for him, that moment of repentance where Jesus entered into his life. And, and even though we thought his trajectory was towards ministry and glory and mission, he knew that before that point, his life was on a trajectory into darkness. And he describes that as a pivot point. Now, he never developed a life of absolute, the glorious ministry that we wanted to see. But he began to track and follow Jesus and begin to build something beautiful. And there are still as many years left for him as there are for me. For him to do beautiful, beautiful, amazing things. There's a moment of pivot that's required where you have to allow the Lord to set your direction. I'm not a basketball guy. I played basketball 
uh, in school when I was younger, but uh, there's a way in which this, this guy that I prayed for was, was a basketball guy. And he described that moment of a pivot for him as like all my weight was on this one foot and I was completely ready to play the game. But what I didn't know is that I was, I was completely playing for the enemy's team, even though I had God's jersey on. And he pivoted. And his life was changed. And for some of us, there might be a pivot point that's required this morning. And some of your friends, there might be a pivot point. But we have to talk about the sin from which we're pivoting or the darkness from which we're pivoting, or the uh, grief from which we're pivoting, or uh, the doubt from which we're pivoting, to understand what we're pivoting to. C.S. Lewis describes uh, these two trajectories like this. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Now that's language that he uses as an old English scholar, but what he's really doing is talking about, we as people are eternal people that we are going to live a life uh, eternally following God in glory and resurrection, or we are going to live a life uh, becoming darker and darker and more twisted. So he says this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. So every person that you meet is an eternal person. Every person that you meet is a person that is going to last forever. And, and the scriptures talk about how we are going to be glorified, how we are going to be given resurrection bodies. And one day you might look like something that I would be tempted right now to worship. If glorified Warren showed up at my house for coffee, I would be like on my face probably, like Warren, like you are so awesome, dude. Like you're just... Would I have hair? Yeah, you would totally have hair. You would totally have hair. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> And I would be so slim and I would be, I would have a six pack for sure, right? Right? I, I do have a six pack. It's just under my fat suit. Um, you know, we would have these resurrected bodies. A person would have something that is just like glorious and beautiful. We would think it is an angel. That's, that's where you're headed if you're on the trajectory to follow Jesus. But if you're not willing to surrender your life to Christ, you slowly become more narcissistic. You become more inward focused. You become uh, more full of yourself. You become more um, self-oriented, more lustful, more drawing life to you instead of pouring life out. And that becomes a horror and a corruption such as you could only imagine in a nightmare. So that's the choice that's before us. We can follow the trajectory, trajectory that Jesus wants for us and we can become a glory or we can become a nightmare. There's a pivot point for us. He goes on and he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these things are all mortal, right? We think of, of our societies as being something that lives forever, and we are just a little blip in the history of Canada. 
but Canada is a blip in the history of you. Their life is through ours is as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, we work with, we marry, we snub, or exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And that's what we choose when we choose whether to respond to the call of Jesus or not. Every time we're choosing to take a path to being an immortal horror or an immortal splendor. Who prefers the whole splendor bit? Right? <laughs> right? I surrender, right? Like, come on. So your trajectory really pivots on that question of whether you're willing to accept Jesus' gift of new life. Right? And so we come to John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus. And this is uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus. Nicodemus was uh, one of the leaders in his culture, in his, in his time. He came to Jesus tonight and he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the science you were doing if, you were not with, if God were not with him. And Jesus didn't answer the question. He answered the question behind the question. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, hey, we know that you're something. We know that you're, uh, God is with you. We know that you're doing signs. So uh, thanks for all those signs. Thanks for all that evidence of the coming of the kingdom. Thanks for setting sick people free. Thanks for uh, casting out demons. Thanks for doing all this amazing stuff that you're doing. Thanks so much that God were with you. Uh, that's just great. Could you just do more of that? That would be fantastic. We would love for you to continue to build the kingdom. We would love for you to care for the poor. We would love for you to do all of this amazing stuff. Please, Jesus, do all of this stuff for us. Uh, please kick out the Romans while you're at it. And let us just have a lovely, lovely time here in our nice, safe nation of Israel. And let us prosper like it was the time of Solomon and David. Because that would be grand for us. Because he knows that's where, where, where Nicodemus is coming from as one of the leaders of his culture. And so Jesus answers a completely different, different question. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see that kingdom unless they're born again. And so we can be people who are even after the good stuff. We can be after the good life. We can be following uh, the teachings of Jesus. We can be following or trying to follow the ways that Jesus wants us to live. We can try to be moral people. We can try to be people of social justice. We can try to be people who are uh, saving the environment. We can try to be people who are doing all of these good things that we think God wants us to do. But none of that means anything unless we surrender and allow him to cause us to be born again. We have to deal with our sin problem. Ultimately, all of our efforts won't mean anything unless we deal with our sin problem. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And he continues on, he jump, jumping to verse 16, and he gives us this beautiful verse that we love so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Hallelujah, who's going to win the football game? Right? Right? Like, that's a good verse. We like that verse. That's such a loving verse, such an amazing verse. He absolutely loves us. He absolutely died for us. Like, we can camp out. We can live our lives in that love of Jesus. But whoever believes in him, what does that mean? Well, he goes on to explain it to the not-as-nice verses. Dang it, sweet baby Jesus. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. Okay, that's okay. He, he's not coming to condemn. He's not coming to judge. He's coming to offer salvation. How does that salvation work? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Dang it. I wish I could be cool pastor and not read these verses. I'm not a cool pastor. <laughs> right? Uh, what we believe about Jesus is really important. What we believe about him is that pivot point. He isn't just a great moral teacher. He isn't just a, a, a wise leader. He came to deal with your sin problem. He came to deal with uh, the wickedness, the deceitfulness of my heart. He came to set me free from the law of sin and death. I was dead to sin. Hallelujah, glory, praise the Lord. I was dead to sin. I was dead. Absolutely impossible for me to move. Absolutely impossible for me to break through an addiction. Absolutely impossible for me uh, to do the things I needed to do to achieve righteousness. But in believing that Jesus came for me to cause new life, to cause me to be reborn, to cause me to have uh, his power living and dwelling inside of me, that's what makes it work. Yes. So, it's a simple question. Will we pivot? In the various areas of your life where you're struggling, in the various areas of your life where you're um, bound, in the various areas of your life where you're on a trajectory towards destruction, will you pivot towards Him? And pivoting towards Him doesn't mean just repentance and trying to do the stuff on your own. It means inviting him to live inside of you in that space and to begin to clean out the stuff of your heart, to begin to do the work inside, to begin to transform you, to begin to make you new, to begin uh, a journey and a trajectory towards freedom. And so if we look at me, if we look at my life, and we look at uh, how much I love Nanaimo bars because they bring comfort when I'm stressed, <laughs> right? Nanaimo bars are a really wonderful memory. But Nanaimo bars are also a drug, right? So how do I give up the drug of choice and choose to follow Jesus? How do I give up the drug of choice and invite Jesus to live inside me, to set me free so that I don't need the drug of choice anymore? What's your drug of choice? What's your comfort of choice? What's the thing that when you feel guilty and shameful and that you've uh, fallen, that you've failed, what is it that you take into yourself? Is it a, is it a sexual thing? Is it food? Is it actually drugs? Is it alcohol? What is that thing that you use to cover over so that you don't feel that uh, pain of sin that's in your life anymore? To allow Jesus to live inside and under that, to replace the need 
for that medication that's false and allow him to bring healing that's real and transformation that's real. That question's before every one of us. What is it that Jesus wants to touch that's the real presenting issue in your life under which all of the medication, all of the games, all of the consumerism, all of it uh, is trying to keep hidden? So let's just stand and ask the Lord that question. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.